misleading and just plain wrong information about the war between Israel and Hamas is flying around online. Some posts contain misinformation, things that are false or inaccurate. In some cases, someone shares something without all the facts at their fingertips and ends up getting it wrong. Now, others are disinformation, false or inaccurate posts that are shared intentionally to mislead people and to control the narrative. Now, if you've been on Facebook, Twitter, or TikTok in the past few days, you know what I'm talking about. You've no doubt come across a lot of content related to the growing war. So what is true? What's not? And how can you tell? Shannon Bond is a correspondent for NPR covering disinformation and democracy. And she joins us now to help us navigate what we're seeing online, also to debunk some of the biggest false claims that have been spreading in recent days. Hey, Shannon, welcome to Reset. Hey, Sasha. Thanks for having me. So fact checkers around the world at NPR, BBC Verify, Bellingcat, Snopes, they're all struggling to keep up with the war between Israel and Hamas. What's going on? I mean, I think a lot of this is just the sheer volume of information, right? I mean, everyone has a phone in their pocket. There are, you know, so we're getting videos, you know, f- first person videos. Um, there are CCTV, there are dashboard cameras. And because of the way technology works and social media works, we have a greater ability than ever to share in real time what is happening. But that volume makes it much harder to sort out facts from fiction. At the same time, we're also dealing with a much more fragmented social media landscape, right? There are many platforms, right? It's not just, you know, Twitter, now X, um, and Facebook and mm-hmm. Instagram. It's also TikTok, Telegram, WhatsApp. There's just many places that these things can spread. And then, you know, there are some particular challenges. I know we're going to get into talking specifically about X um, because of the changes that have happened on that platform. But it's all just combining. I just think people, it's really overwhelming. And that, that's true for the researchers and journalists who are trying to pick their way through all this as well. Absolutely. And before we get there, Shannon, one disinformation expert that you talked to basically said this is propaganda 101, right? You, you post and yeah. post and post to fill the gap in the early hours of a crisis trying to create a narrative. Talk more about what you're seeing since Saturday on social media. That's right. I mean, you know, I think one of the the first things we've seen that we now see sort of frequently in these kinds of breaking news situations is, um, you know, videos and images in particular that are mischaracterized, taken out of context, misrepresented. You know, there are have been clips going around on social media um, purporting to show Hamas militants shooting down helicopters. They're actually they're not even real videos. They're clips from video games. There are old videos being passed off as new. So whether it's, you know, footage of airstrikes from earlier this year, you know, video from years ago in Syria, there were even images of fireworks celebrating a soccer game in Algeria that were being represented as as attacks on Gaza. You know, there are things like fake accounts that have popped up impersonating a BBC reporter, impersonating the Jerusalem Post newspaper. There was a fabricated White House memo that was circulating on, on Twitter and Facebook claiming that the Biden administration was giving $8 billion in aid to Israel. And there's just, you know, there's this Mm. sort of flood of these unverified claims and just rumors, right? I mean, people are trying to figure out what's going on. It's this this sort of classic thing that happens when you have high interest, but sort of a void of credible information. You know, you end up with a lot of stuff filling the gap that's either unconfirmed or in some cases just outright false. And these misleading posts sounds like they're being amplified by by all sides. Are, are we aware of bad actors with specific intentions as well? 
I mean, we certainly see, you know, when it comes to um, super violent and graphic videos, I mean, Hamas is intentionally posting these. We know this, that they often get posted first on Telegram and then get picked up elsewhere and in some cases then do get misrepresented. We also know that, you know, there are state actors, including Russia and Iran, as well as other groups who, you know, in this kind of chaotic information environment, they like to take advantage, right, to fuel division, to spread propaganda. You, you mean governments their- planting disinformation? Governments are, you know, proxies for governments. And, you know, we haven't seen, I should say, we have not seen any direct evidence of that yet, but we are starting to see narratives, you know, for example, narratives aligned with Russian interests. There have been claims circulating that Hamas is using weapons that were provided to Ukraine. Um, There has been some evidence that there are, you know, some groups of bot accounts or stolen social media accounts starting to post coordinated messaging. But it's it's early yet for the sort of attribution to be able to say, yes, this is definitely coming from a particular group or a particular government. But I think we have to assume that's happening. We know that you know, these influence operations happen all the time. Um, and this is something certainly that the platforms are, are taking a look at. Before I get you to clear up some of the things that are true online, Shannon, how is information verified in the first place? Like, What's the standard? I mean, you know, when it comes for, for journalists, when we're looking at this, you know, we're looking to get, you know, eyewitness sources, you know, people on the ground, multiple sources, right, for a claim. Um, when it comes to, to, you know, to, to looking at videos, there are, you know, you have many open source intelligence researchers, as well as, you know, visual investigations units at, at media organizations, you know, they, they will do things. They will look into the provenance of a video. They will look at where it appears to be, you know, they'll look at the metadata. They'll look at a, where it appears to be coming from. You know, does it match up with what we know about that area? You know, a lot of this is just like a really like kind of legwork of just trying to find if you only see one source for something, you know, you really should be questioning it. You need right. to be looking across a variety of sources. And, and, and you know, can you, in a video, can you find the same incident being captured from different angles, right? And and a lot of this just takes time. And I think that's the other problem. People want immediate answers. And a lot of this takes time. And, and we're very impatient about being able to say, is this true or is this not true? And sometimes it just it, you know, may take hours or even days to, to be able to verify. What do we know to be true about the violence that's taken place so far? I mean, I know you have some colleagues reporting on this. What, what are they finding? I mean, you know, we know there has just been widespread horrific violence, you know, over the weekend, the initial attacks by Hamas, you know, just, I mean, people are using the word massacres. And I think that's true. You know, we've had more than 1300 people confirmed killed in Israel, um, including children, you know, and then as Israel has, you know, retaliated with these strikes against Gaza, more than a thousand people have been killed in Gaza. You know, the, the scale of the destruction and loss of life and loss of civilian life is massive. And I mean, one of the frustrating things is when we're trying to we're, we're trying to verify, you know, what is happening. This is not to minimize the, the the scale of the destruction, the scale of the tragedy that's happening. But I think it's really important for people to to know know the facts about what's happening. You know, not just sort of believe some some something they saw on social media because it seems it seems true. Let's get back to talking about Twitter because uh, that site had a reputation for being a good place to, to go to, to get firsthand information when there was breaking news situations like a war or, or natural disaster. But as we've been seeing, X, as it's called now, is, is no longer that place, right? I, I want to review the changes that Elon Musk has made to this platform and how those changes impact a user's ability to verify information. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think we should be too... Um, um, 
uh, optimistic about the way, you know, how great Twitter used to be. I mean, yes, it, it, it certainly was a, a, the place people went to for, for, to get information in breaking news situations. It's always had problems with, with accuracy. Um, you know, but certainly the, these, this has gotten worse under Elon Musk. I mean, so first of all, you know, the, 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 he's, you know, he's, he's, uh, fired or, or laid off, you know, huge amounts of workers at the company, including many of the workers who worked on trust and safety, who worked on, you know, monitoring the platform for everything from hate speech to violent videos to terrorist content. Um, you know, they, they are under-resourced in that way. Um, he's also made some significant changes in how the platform operates. So, you know, Twitter for a long time had these check marks that it would give out to prominent accounts, mm-hmm. news outlets, politicians, you know, allow you to verify this is really, you know, this is really Joe Biden posting, or this is really WBEZ's Twitter account. Um, he's changed that, right? So now those, those verified check marks um, are available to anybody who wants to pay an $8 a month subscription fee. It's not necessarily an indication that a person is who they say they are. Um, but there are a lot of benefits people get from subscribing to that, to, to, to get those check marks. They're, they're, Posts appear higher um, in in Twitter's feed. They get kind of, they get they get boosted, um, and as well, they are eligible then for monetization, which means you know, they get they can get a share of of advertising money from Twitter mm-hmm. based on the view counts of their posts. And a lot of the the folks that you know researchers who I talked to about this, you know, their concern is that really incentivizes people to post things that are going to get highly shared or get highly reacted to. But it doesn't matter if they're true or not, right? And so there's maybe an incentive there to post, you know, to post that explosive video, even if you're not sure that it's 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 really from Gaza or it really depicts what it what it claims to depict. Um, and that's that certainly seems to be fueling a lot of what we're seeing on Twitter. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and if you're just tuning in, we're talking about misinformation and disinformation spreading about the war between Israel and Hamas with NPR correspondent Shannon Bond. She covers the spreading of misleading narratives and false claims and how they impact society. So Twitter relies heavily on user-generated fact checks. What's your impression, Shannon, of, of their effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, this is what they sort of used to fill the gap. As I said, they've, you know, they've gotten rid of a lot of the staff who used to to try to verify information or, mm-hmm. or label it if it was incorrect. Um, you know, they are relying on what's called this community notes program. Um, and you do see community notes popping up on many of these posts, but it's pretty inconsistent. Not all posts with misinformation that has been debunked. So, you know, videos that have been confirmed, you know, this is not a video from Israel. This is a video from, you know, three years ago in Syria. You know, in, some, in many cases on the platform, those notes are not showing up on those videos. Um, NBC News also did some reporting that, um, you know, the, the system has just been slow. It's been slow to be, to approve notes and then append them to posts. Um, and so it, a lot, and a lot of times, you know, these, they don't get added to, to a post until it's already circulated widely. So lots of people have seen it and people may not go back and then see the fact check. We also know people have become more skeptical of fact checks in general. Um, you know, Twitter ha- is taking some other steps. They've talked about, you know, they, they do ban Hamas accounts. They, they say they're working with their peer sites to take down terrorist content and to monitor for, you know, graphic videos and violent speech and particularly anti-Semitic speech right now. Um, but certainly talking, you know, being on the platform myself and, and talking to folks who study the platform, um, there is a sense that it is worse now than it, than it has been in a long time. X could potentially be in legal trouble with the EU over content about the war being shared on the platform. Can you briefly tell us what's going on there? 
That's right. The EU passed this new law called the Digital Services Act that includes requirements on large platforms um, to um, to monitor and, and uh, the, the spread of, of false and misleading and illegal content on their platforms. You know, as in, in many countries in Europe, you know, some of this is actually you know, some hate speech is actually illegal. Um, and so uh, the the Twitter, as well as Meta and, and TikTok, actually have gotten letters um, from an, a, a, one of the commissioners saying, you know, we, we, we need you to we need to see that you are actually taking action on the, the, the falsehoods we see spreading. And there are real teeth to this um, violations of this law. You know, these companies could be penalized up to six percent of their global revenue. Um, so, you know, there's there's actual teeth here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so far we've seen, you know, Elon Musk sort of replied on Twitter or on X, you know, saying, you know, tell us what tell us what the content you're seeing that's illegal is. I mean, he clearly wants to sort of do this all out in the open. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to have to see how the European Union responds to this. Where are we with the, the Biden administration's fight to be able to communicate with social media companies on issues like this? Well, there is an injunction in place barring the White House and several federal agencies from communicating with social media companies about specifically around content related to COVID-19 and elections. Um, that is you know, part of this larger legal case. It's the injunction itself is likely headed to the Supreme Court. So we're sort of waiting to see if that gets upheld. Um, it is supposed to allow the government to communicate about national security threats, things like illegal content, which you imagine a lot of this would fall under. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've heard is there, there's been a chilling effect. Um, you know, platforms are very nervous. The go- and government agencies are very nervous about talking. You know, they don't want to they don't wanna go anywhere near what might you know end up violating the terms of this injunction. Um, so, you know, the, the reporting, you know, that my colleagues and I have done you know, indicates there's just been a bit of a, a chill in, in those communications. And I think that does, you know, have, have, have potential effects, you know, if they are not, if the government's not able to flag, um, you know, content that appears to be violating the platform's rules. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to think about this yet, Shannon, but I, I feel like we have to, the, the war and changes to X, they're going to have an impact on the 2024 election cycle in this country, especially if peace is not reached soon. So I'm curious what you're going to keep an eye on. I mean, I think many of these things we've been talking about, these, you know, the, the, the design and features on X at the moment that are continuing, appear to be continuing to incentivize the spread of misinformation. You know, more generally, we've seen all of these platforms, you know, for the most part, back off of their efforts in many ways to address election misinformation. Um, you know, independent research into disinformation and the way it spreads is under threat from congressional investigations and lawsuits. You know, and so all of this makes it much harder for us to see how information is spreading, um, you know, and, and, and who may be trying to manipulate the information space. And I think it also comes, you know, I think what we're seeing, there, there is a real lack of trust, you know, among the general public and what they're seeing online, which is, you know, valid. If, if we're, if I'm telling you right now, a lot of these videos you're seeing, like, aren't real, yeah. you know, what does that make people think about what they're seeing? And I think that lack of trust is really troubling. We've been talking with Shannon Bond about misinformation and disinformation that's spreading online about the war between Israel and Hamas and how changes at X, which is formerly known as Twitter, have contributed to the spread. Shannon's a correspondent for NPR covering disinformation, democracy, and how misleading narratives impact society. Now, Shannon's going to stick around and we'll bring in a couple of experts to discuss how to vet viral information and improve digital literacy. That's up next on Reset. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. 
False and misleading content is usually designed to target our emotions and exploit our most deeply held beliefs and values. The author wants to bypass our critical thought processes in order to go viral. Most commonly, it uses fear, anger, and outrage, but sometimes curiosity and hope, too. We want to talk about why this happens and ways that you can practice healthy skepticism when it comes to your information sources. NPR correspondent Shannon Bond is still with us. And joining the conversation now is Peter Adams, Senior Vice President of Research and Design at the News Literacy Project. Good to have you here, Peter. It's great to be here. Thank you. And David Rapp is a professor of education and social policy, as well as a professor of psychology at Northwestern University. Welcome, Professor. Hi, Sasha. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining. I'm going to start with you, Peter. What are the most common forms of misinformation and disinformation on the Internet? Sure. Um, well, as, as Shannon, I think, mentioned previously, um, taking things out of context and presenting them in a new false context is far and away the most common type of, of mis- and disinformation. Uh, it's very easy to produce. Uh, and in breaking news events, um, it proliferates quite quickly. Yeah. Um, aside from that, you know, you still see quite a bit of what, what we call manipulated content or content that is doctored in some way, images that have been changed, cropped, videos that have been edited deceptively, um, and then a lot of imposter content, people pretending to be a public figure, creating screenshots of tweets that never existed mm -hmm. uh, or other social media posts, documents from the White House, as we've seen recently. Um, and then uh, a growing threat is the rise of of more sophisticated technology to make what we call fabricated content, which is just whole cloth, you know, false information, in this case, generated by really sophisticated wow. uh, generative AI. All seems very messy, right? It can be. Uh, I mentioned that heightened emotional state. Uh, what other qualities do you think make something go viral, though? Yeah, I think when something... Um, you know, resonates with your biases, right? Um, that's sort of the pathway to that emotional reaction that you were talking about, to make you fearful, to make you outraged. You know, outrage is a, is a result of, of somebody targeting your values, your beliefs, um, and uh, getting you to, to, to react quickly, to share quickly. Um, and it's actually an attempt to, to exploit you, right, as a, as a vector for misinformation. So mm -hmm. it may seem to uphold your, your beliefs. It may seem to resonate with your politics. But it's actually an attempt to exploit you and your personal credibility with, with your friends and family. And I'd love to hear from you all on this. What do you think are, are the, the consequences of being presented with something that's not true? You first, Professor. Sure, yeah. There's a host of research projects that demonstrate exposure to inaccurate information can really lead to problems in terms of people's comprehension and memory. So there's at least three things that can result after you're exposed to inaccuracies, even after brief exposures. The first is you can get confused about what actually is true. The second is you might doubt about what you actually already know. Some people call this gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you might actually end up relying on the information and, and using it to inform your beliefs and your behaviors and your judgments. So exposures to inaccurate information are pervasive and if we're not prepared and thinking deeply about it, we can actually have change in how we think and our decision-making, which is a real problem. Shannon, when we're presented with something that's not true, what could happen from there? I mean, all of the things the professor just said, and I also think there's this consequence, too, this sort of broader consequence where because we, we, we're talking about this a lot. You know, it, it, people then end up becoming, I, I worry about people becoming distrustful of, of everything they see. You know, and, and, and as Professor just said, you know, doubting what they already know or doubting new sources of information. Um, you know, there's a way in which, you know, we encourage skepticism. But then, you know, if, if you feel like you can't trust anything, I think it also sort of can encourage people to just tune out 
mm-hmm. you know, and tune out, you know, especially with news, like just be like, it's too hard. It's too complicated. Who can know, you know, I'm just not going to worry about this. Yeah. And that really has you know, long lasting effects for people's, you know, civic engagement, political engagement, which of course is really important in a democracy. Yeah. Peter, healthy skepticism is what we want, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think what Shannon was just describing is, is something we like to think of as either, you know, information cynicism or information nihilism even, right? So the 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 belief that you can't really know what's going on on the ground uh, right now in Israel, for example, uh, that the truth about uh, Russian actions in, in Syria, you know, in the in, in previous years uh, was a major goal of one of their, you know, of their influence campaigns. The Russian government was very set on trying to give, you know, convince people to just give up on knowing uh, that the idea that that uh, what's actually going on is, is knowable. So um, believing that that no source of information is reliable uh, is a is a real threat here. Uh, and one we have to, to be cautious of. Professor Rapp, uh, let's talk about some of the research that you've done at the, the Reading Comprehension Lab. Plausibility is, is a focus, right? If something seems plausible, it doesn't activate our evaluation process in the same way as something that just doesn't seem likely, right? Yeah, that, yeah that's exactly true. So when you encounter some misinformation that seems plausible, that seems reasonable, that resonates with your expectations and biases, as Peter has mentioned, or that seems like it might, you know, this makes sense, we are much more likely to believe it, to rely on it, to repeat it, to think more about it, to think that it confirms our beliefs. But if the information um, we're seeing, the misinformation is entirely implausible, unlikely, it's easy for us to evaluate and reject it and discount it. So one of the challenges in the kind of mis- and disinformation that's being presented right now all over the social media space is that videos are often taking places, uh, presented from places where the events have actually happened, but perhaps in the past. Mm-hmm. And that can actually make people confused about the situation. So plausibility is a real a real challenge. The, the degree to which something is more reasonable and seems to make sense can really confirm our existing beliefs and lead us to rely on it. You've also learned from your studies that the, the human baseline is to trust until yeah. we give, you know, uh, until we're given a reason uh, that the source might not be reliable. Right. This was a real surprising finding for us. So in a variety of projects, we've looked at the degree to which people pay attention to sources when they're consulting information. And one one worrisome thing that's worth mentioning is people often don't spontaneously look to sources of information, so they won't necessarily check out whether um, this was provided by a particular source. They'll just read the information without really thinking about the source deeply. But when they're made readily aware of the source, if the source is deemed credible to them, they're likely to believe it. If it's deemed not credible, they'll disbelieve it. But if they don't know this source, if they don't know anything about the source, they seem to treat it as if it was credible information. So that's particularly worrisome, and I suspect related to a lot of discussions going on right now about um, uh, Twitter X's uh, decision to get rid of headlines and mm-hmm. confuse source information. Yeah, that, that worried us too, for sure. Uh, so Shannon, with all of this in mind, what do you keep in mind when using social platforms as a source of news? I mean, I think it's, it's, there's, it's a behavior that um, a lot of people don't do, which is you know, if you're presented with a link, click through and read the link, right? Like does, you know, I think often we end up seeing too is that people are presenting, you know, people will take a, a news article or a scientific study or something or, and, and, and say, oh, you know, in, in a quick post and we'll say, this is, you know, this shows, this, this proves what I was saying or this shows X, Y, Z. And as long as you click through and it doesn't actually show that or state that or prove that. I mean, so one of the things is just like actually, you know, get off of social media and, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, look for, There's you know, an idea. Like, look to the original source of information. 
Um, you know, I think, you know, this, this question about sources and how you can verify and trust sources, I think it is, it's gotten much more complicated, um, you know, on X for the reasons we talked about the, around the, the check marks, as well as the lack of headlines. Um, and, and so, you know, again, I think it's, it's ex- also exposing yourself to a broader scope of, of sources and, yeah. and people that you're hearing from. Um, but I think, I mean, a lot of it comes down to, I think, not only relying on these social platforms as your main source of names. Peter, what can you teach us about verifying information on X? Like, how are you using the site? Sure, carefully. Um, <laughs> first of all, I, I think, you know, what, what, what Shannon pointed out is is true, right? In an attempt to to maximize time on platform, keep people there, keep people in their feeds, and sort of um, uh, diminish the prominence of links to outside sources, um, they've created a lot of confusion. Um, and I think we have to actively combat that. So to to really double check the source and double check what the you know the post that's being offered or the link that's being offered actually says, um, and also really turn to trusted sources. So there are still Standards-based news sources very active on X, Twitter, uh, and on other social media channels, and being deliberate about seeking them out, being deliberate about seeking out news rather than letting news find you through an algorithm, mm-hmm. I think is a great um, strategy. When you see something you're not sure about, your number one step, you know, stopping and doing a quick search for for whatever claim uh, is there, particularly a sensational big claim. You know, the bigger the claim, the the greater the evidence it should it should provide, um, and doing a quick search can can uh, uh, catch a lot of that stuff out. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just joining, we're talking with a panel of news literacy experts about how we're impacted by false and misleading claims online and ways to stop the spread. Peter Adams is Senior Vice President of Research and Design at the News Literacy Project. David Rapp runs the Reading Comprehension Lab at Northwestern University. And Shannon Bond reports on disinformation for NPR. Sticking with you for a moment here, Peter, I'm curious if age plays a role in the spread of misinformation. Um, you know, we were talking about this in a meeting yesterday and, and we brought up the fact that, you know, some young people feel as if they need to post something to their Instagram story in order to prove that they care, for instance. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's research to, to suggest that, that it does. Uh, there's research that suggests that, that older adults um, share uh, slightly more misinformation on social media than younger folks, um, although that's mostly attributed, I think, to understanding how the platforms work and sort of how Internet humor works and trolling works and mm-hmm. sources work and things like that. They grew up in a very different information environment, right? Um, but there are studies that suggest that older Americans are better at um, detecting misinformation in a in an offline environment, right, when presented with with uh, examples of misinformation than younger people. Um, I do think that that a lot of people make the mistake of of thinking that you know teens and young people grew up with social media and that they are therefore digital media literate. And they know what to do, and they know what at to all do, times. and they know how algorithms work. When when in fact they really don't. Um, understand. There's a lot they do understand. There's a lot they understand about how to post and how to get engagement. But there's a lot about the attention economy. There's a lot about mis- and disinformation and certainly a lot about standards-based, credible uh, journalism and information that they don't. Yeah, no, great points. Professor, your research, it looks at something called social contagion. Uh, how are we contaminated by the inaccuracies of our friends? The idea that we often pick up 
ideas and information that other people might mention, both intentionally and unintentionally. And one challenge is sometimes we're not even aware where we got that information from and might think we thought of it ourselves. So a social contagion effect can occur when we're collaborating with others, when we're on social media, when we're talking with friends and family, and ideas get presented back and forth. And then later when we're thinking about what we're saying or talking about ideas, we end up relying on ideas that we actually didn't generate and we might not have vetted carefully. So, you know, it has this uh, analogy to any kind of contagion situation. Think about, you know, COVID or any other pandemic. So if we're aware of this notion, if we're aware of the possibility of social contagion, one thing we're really hopeful for is it might make people more careful and think about where did I originally hear this information? When I talk about it, where did it come from? Did I generate it from myself? How did I figure that out? What data did I use? What evidence did I generate it from? What articles did I read? What podcasts did I listen to? So having some awareness and thought about sources can help support it, but social contagion is a real dangerous thing. Advertisers know how to use it all the time. Shannon, we, we've seen how important firsthand accounts have been in exposing police brutality through social media. Uh, do you believe in the, the usefulness of, of platforms like Twitter, despite the spread of misinformation? I mean, the, the optimistic side of me wants to. Um, I mean, I think, it, I think it is incredibly important. And, you know, I mean, I've, you know, I've been a journalist, you know, since 2008. Like, I, you know, I kind of can't imagine in a way, um, you know, doing the and, and reporting on certainly being a tech reporter before my current beat and being a media reporter. Um, you know, just the thinking about the, the kind of access to information we have, the access to, to people we may not be able to uh, otherwise reach, you know, in sort of the way that, that a lot of these sites used to work or and certainly the way Twitter used to work where you, know, you could find people you know, experiencing something and, you know, reach out to them, connect them directly. You could get that sort of firsthand testimony. Yeah. Um, I think it's just gotten much more complicated. Um, and, and so I do think it is still, you know, it's still a place, um, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still on there. I'm not tweeting, but I'm certainly on there um, monitoring what's happening and, and trying to find information. But, you know, I've, ha- I have had to sort of move elsewhere when it comes to thinking about, um, you know, where to find sources and, 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 you know, where to find credible, uh, credible information myself. I mean, Peter, what role should platforms have in, in moderating user generated content? And how do you, again, how do you verify that content? Right, right. I mean, when, you know, when it comes to verifying, again, doing, doing a quick search, looking at a visual and not being sure if it's true, you can do a reverse image search, you know, more easily now than, than ever before. Um, and, and more quickly, um, I think that, you know, the platforms have a great deal of responsibility and our expectations as users should, you know, should be for them to, to uphold their uh, community standards and, and uh, their, their, you know, have a robust enough moderation team to, to meet the challenge. You know, disinformation is corrosive to democracy. It's harmful to our lives. It influences our decision making. It can jeopardize our health. Um, and as users of this platform, we, we are, you know, the value proposition here, right? Our attention is what they're selling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people should should demand better of, of the social media platforms that they're on. They should expect transparency. They should expect that community standards are upheld. Um, they should expect them not to platform extremists, and they should expect them to, to, you know, take care of the information environment that they're providing for people. Yeah. Shannon, you know what I'm also wondering? Who is most impacted by misinformation? I mean, I think it's hard to think of anyone who's not because I, I think it does have all these downstream effects, even for folks who are not, you know, folks who folks who are not journalists and, and addicted to Twitter, like mm-hmm. some of us. Um, it, it, it has all kinds of impacts because I think what we, you know what we're seeing is 
uh, you know, particularly that, you know, there are these sort of large scale influencers, right. Who, who, uh, you know, for all the reasons we've talked about, you know, are trying to maximize engagement and, you know, and have their own, in some cases, have their own political projects or their own sort of financial incentives um, for, you know, spreading inflammatory content. And and I think that changes, it changes the way that our politics is covered. It changes the way, you know, everything is covered, you know, from, from the war in Israel to the, the COVID pandemic. And, and so it affects everyone, even if they are not directly communicating, you know, you're, you're interacting um, with sort of, you know, the, the face of disinformation on, on Twitter or on Instagram or on TikTok. Um, you know, I think it has very much affected the way we have conversations ab- about what is happening in the world. You know, it's, it's sort of become this choose your own adventure where people can pick their own sources mm-hmm. of, of reality. Um, and I think it's very much impacted our politics more than anything. Professor Rapp, I watched one of your lectures last night and you mentioned that, uh, People need to know what a good argument is and and what evidence is required to support one. Uh, And I'm thinking of the fact that lots of people that we love and and generally trust share and reshare these false claims, right? So what should we do when we see misinformation shared by family and friends? I mean, how do we confront it without there being a fight? Yeah, that's a really hard thing to to wrestle with. You don't want to attack uh, the misinformation or the speaker presenting it because that's not going to go very well most of the time. You're not going to be very convincing. But one tactic that seems to be really useful is to have a conversation with that person about where did you find that information? What was that based on? You know, ask them what the source was. What were the qualifications that that source had to provide the information? What about it was convincing to you? You could ask them what kind of information might suggest to you that that's wrong. I think having those discussions in reasonable ways where you try to discuss with the person that we together are trying to come to some understanding could be much, much more fruitful thing having discussions or you know confronting someone and saying hey what you just thought was wrong or that website is terrible or why are you even telling me this this is ridiculous which really can't foster the conversation the goal is to really think about we together we mm-hmm. as a community we as a society are trying to understand the world so what features are we using what cues are telling us what might be truthful and not truthful that can be really useful we're out of time peter but leave us with this what resources are available at the news literacy project Oh, so glad you asked. Um, lots, actually. We have a, a, when it comes to misinformation and viral rumors, we have a great website called RumorGuard that lives at rumorguard.org. Um, it curates examples of mis- and disinformation that are circulating um, and, you know, clarifies what's true and not true, but also provides people with a kind of news literacy takeaway tips so that you can recognize things like that in the future and not fall for them. Um, we have a great newsletter called Get Smart About News that comes out every week that kind of keeps people up to date about changes in social media platform moderation, journalism, and, and other topics uh, like that, and lots of events for the public as well that people yeah. can learn about at newslet.org. Peter Adams is the Senior Vice President of Research and Design at the News Literacy Project. David Rapp is a professor at Northwestern University. And Shannon Bond is an NPR correspondent covering disinformation and democracy. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Now, as the world continues to monitor the situation in Israel and Gaza, we're covering the local response to the situation and we're checking in with folks who are here. We want to hear from you. Tell us, what is on your mind right now as you continue to watch events unfold? Here's one message that we got from Chris in Edison Park. Why are there no women at high levels in the Mideast holding political power? The women over there are all saying 
War will not solve the problem. Nobody wins with war. If you want peace, put women in power. Thanks for leaving us that message, Chris. Now, if you want to weigh in or if you have family or friends who've been affected and you want to share your story, our voicemail box is open, 888-915-9945. Again, that number is 888-915-9945.